You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast. Stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Today on Common Grace, we have Joanne Lyons. She's served on the board of directors for many organizations, ranging from the National Religious Partnership for the Environment to even the President of the United States Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. As founder and CEO of World Hope International, she has directed faith-based relief and development organizations into over 30 countries around the globe. In today's interview, we talk about Joanne's life journey, the power of compassion, partnerships in a polarized world, peacemaking in the way of Jesus, and the importance of empowering women in leadership. I'd like to welcome Joanne Lyon to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Good to be here, George. Well, I'd love to just jump in. Could you share a bit of your your faith story and your leadership story and your journey? Well, that would be a long time because I'm old. But uh, I'd like to make just a couple of little points along my life that I think have been very significant pieces that have impacted me. My Both of my parents were pastors. Uh, my mother ordained as well. They were church planters, so I was sort of born in the middle of a church plant someplace, or you know, they were entrepreneurs, very entrepreneurial, very pioneerish type. So that I'm sure impacted me on on how I see life as well. Uh, they're pretty positive; it doesn't matter. We go into a place, and we're going to see this happen, and etc. So that was out in Oklahoma, and that was during days of segregation. And every Wednesday, this woman of color would come and get our trash. It would be early in the morning because it would be kind of dark. And I remember hearing her sing. I was very attracted to that and would run to the door and look, watch. That was the only time I ever saw any people of color. And I just kept asking my father, where does she live? Where does she live? Finally, one day he said, okay, I'll take you where she lives. And I will never forget that day, George, when the pavement ended, the dirt road began. And that was in segregated times. That was what in that town of... Oklahoma called quote unquote colored town. And I just was overwhelmed. And I saw children my age. And I would say to, I said to my father, well, why don't they come to my school? You know, it was a small town. Why don't they come to my school? And I remember him just saying, oh, oh well, they have their own school. Well, why don't they come to our church? Because, you know, if you're the preacher's kid, the church is the center of your life. Well, they have their own church. And somehow in my father's voice, I knew how he was answering me was uncomfortable and he didn't know what else to say. And we drove away and I could never get that out of my mind. So I became attracted when we would go through cities. I wanted to go through the cities that where poverty was and where it was. I wanted to look, et cetera. So I believe my call, God's call to me for justice came at that young age of five years old. I didn't know what to call it. And then I went on to college and after I finished my undergrad at the University of Cincinnati, and I just, I was called, and this is in the 60s now, so I was called to teach in the inner city that I knew. And so then, as I grew, my theology, the scriptures began to become very alive to me, and I was able to begin to put that call together with justice and with what it means to live a holy life, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, because if it's if it's only one or the other, if it's only just justice, you just kind of burn out and keep trying to do it. And I'm not against that. I've got friends who don't have faith who work in justice. And then if it's only just your personal faith, it's always kind of about you and internally. But God's called us to be holy people, which holy doesn't mean off in a corner someplace. It means living like Jesus, being like Jesus. And you begin to put that together, justice and your faith together, justice and living a holy life together. And that becomes the power to be able to make things happen. And I think it's the power of the Holy Spirit. So then I can go a second point in my life. And I was, um, my I got married. My husband was a pastor. We moved, I thought, well, I know how to do this. I grew up in this, you know, kind of arrogant. We moved to take our first church. I got a job teaching school. And the first year was great. I Oh, I knew how to do everything. So we could get it all done. That church would grow, blah, blah, blah. But the second year, I became very, very dissatisfied and hated to go to church. That's kind of bad when you're the pastor. Didn't like the people. That's even worse. (laughs) And just became very, very, finally thought if, if 
we just could, if my husband would leave the ministry, that would just make everything dandy. But he wouldn't do that. Uh, and then ultimately I left him for only for one evening. I left, I got mad and left and then couldn't find, uh, didn't know where to go and then put the car in the ditch. So I had to have the tow truck bring the car back. And uh, one morning I found myself sick, not feeling well. And I've been, would always get sick on Sundays, but this wasn't Sunday. And um, found myself uh, in the hospital and then really realized this is, I'm hungry for God. I don't know what else. I'm hungry for God. God's got to ha- help this. I can't do anything more about it. And there was just a very moment in time when I sensed the Holy Spirit come over me. But you know what? I had to confess. I had to confess some things before that happened. I had to confess my arrogance. I had to confess my self-righteousness. I had to confess my pride because I said I knew everything. Nobody could teach me anything after all. I'd been in the church all my life. I knew everything. And God broke me down. I guess maybe, I don't know if you'd use the word deconstruct today, but God broke me down to say, wait a minute, I this is who I am. Not that picture that you've always had and, and what you do. This is who I am. And, and that was in my 20s. And I sensed the Holy Spirit coming within me and filling me and guiding me. And it's been on that path. So those would be the two major pieces in my life uh, that have made that have strengthened me and made me move forward and impact everything I do. There's a great line of anthropologists did a study of the John Wesley revivals in uh, England and how that so transformed society. You know, people's lives, hearts were transformed, and but society was transformed. I mean, laws were changed, and it became the literally the beginning of the end of the slave trade. I mean, his, he he worked with Wilberforce. Right, the last letter he wrote before he died was to Wilberforce in the slave trade. And uh, this anthropologist was so intrigued to study this, and so he did a whole big tome on uh, uh, Wesleyan perfectionism and English industrial society. Well, how did that? How did that work? And there's a great line in there that he finally says, the mystical power of sanctification, which means giving yourself fully to the Holy Spirit, makes benevolent motives work. (laughs) The the, the mysterious power, the mystical power. He couldn't figure it out. But somehow these folks, their work, it works, you know. And so I think that's where when we talk about the the coming together of justice and, 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 and holy living together. So God's called us to this world. Tim Keller has a great line talking about God created a, a perfect world. And then, then sin entered. He didn't create disease. He didn't create poverty. He didn't create all this. But he's called us to move into it and help and move into his creation. Mm. Man, that's really powerful. I love how you, 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 you really paint a picture about living with a faith that, that lives between the tensions, a creative tension between private and public faith. That's right. In it, for some reason, I you know I've grown up in in a background where, you know, many people were very um, skeptical of of anything that would be seen as social justice or community transformation and engagement. But it was ironic in the culture I grew up in; political machinations were not a problem. Getting involved real with real strong poli- political <laughs> kind of tribalism. Uh, within the church, that was no problem. But man, you better not do anything to community because that might be works, you know, based righteousness. That might be, you know, you're trying to earn your faith or whatever. Could you could you talk about that a little bit? We'd we'd been talking a little bit about some of the the lean sometimes Christians can or like get pulled into a, a current with real strong kind of political uh, tinges to it. Well, I have to go back. You know, the I always talk talk about the big four in the Old Testament, and and Jesus lived it out also. But we talk about the widow the orphan, the poor, and the stranger. I mean, that's all through. In fact, it's interesting in uh, Zechariah 4, even that that great text in Zechariah 4 that says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It's in the context of working in the big four, the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the strangers. And then goes on and says, a nation will go down if they aren't uh, taken care of this. So you need to confess this. I don't find us confessing much about that. We, could, we have certain sins that, that are favorites for our nation. And so we confess those, but we're not confessing these. What's been all through scripture 
And so I think when we look at this, it isn't just, uh, well, okay, we're going to food food pantry and I'm going to give out food. That's good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against that. But what can we do to help that people do not have to come to the food pantry? You know, how can we come in and wh what systems are keeping people in the food pantry? You see, that's systemic evil. God's called us to come up against that evil. I will give a, a example of, that I think we can greatly understand, and that is slavery. Well, how long did we have slavery in this country? And it was justified by scriptures. It was justified by this. It was justified by that. Well, then people began to feel a little guilty. Well, maybe we need to take better care of the slaves. You know, maybe we better make sure they have a little more food or they have a little more of this, a little more of this. And finally, some folks, uh, and literally out of my own background, my tradition said, wait a minute, this is sin. Slavery is sin. So I think when we look at that system, the system of slavery was sin. And we have systems that are sin that we need to, to address, that we, we come up against. So the dramatic one, of course, with slavery is that all the abolitionists and all that took place and our history is replete with that. So I think it's, it's it, but we tend to not to look at that. Well, we'll just keep handing this out. John Wesley is fascinating in England. During uh, this time, there, there, there was what we'll call the Corn Laws. And what happened was uh, ale, I mean, the price of grain kept going higher and higher and higher because they were selling a lot of ale. Now, that was impacting the, it, the what was the, then known in London as the slums and much of alcoholism and poverty and so forth. And at that point then, poor people, the price of bread went up and poor people could not go buy their bread, could not buy bread. Now, okay, in our country today, we'd all run to broker whatever your local store is, and we'd all get bread, those middle class of us, and take bread to the poor. And Wesley said, no, the poor need to buy their own bread. And so they began to lobby the parliament and change the laws, and the price of grain came down, and poor people could go buy their own bread. So that's where we call systemic evil, systemic injustice, and we work at the justice of that, and people can live in that. Yeah. Well, that's a powerful image because just within that story, you see the poor and the powerless, or the people with power and those with those who are powerless, finding an intersection in Christ and, and in the church. Right. You, you see people who might be called to the world of law, the world of political nature, and people within business. And and people within the church partnering rather than, um, you know, really focusing on uh, partisanship. They're fo focusing on partnership. That's really good, George. And I think one of the things when we talk about politics, you know, if we're going to stand up for the poor, whatever, you, we have to do political things. But where we get in trouble is where we start doing partisan political things. And only one party is the answer. And then we get drawn into that partisan politics and become uh, a slave to that party, as opposed to what Jesus has called us. And Jesus has called us to be the voice for the voiceless. You know, this is on this theme. Um, I was reading a little bit about your background, but it says that you served uh, the president of the United States, I believe Obama, on the uh, advisory council of faith-based neighborhood partnerships. That's right. Uh -huh, I did. Could you speak to like how to, how we form partnerships through such a partisan world? Like how, how do you encourage Christians and, and even people from different faiths or no faith in partnership? I think I, I really have done this and, and want to continue to do it. I think this is the great opportunity that we as, as, as believers in Jesus can form partnerships with Muslims. We can form a partnership with Muslims on something that is impacting all of us in our community. In fact, I'm just right now, I'm involved here in Indianapolis with a Greater Indianapolis Multi-Faith Alliance. And what are we doing? We, what's interestingly, we've formed what we call sacred friendships. You know, you'll have lunch with the rabbi, lunch with the imam, the, the, the Sikh person, uh, the Hindu priest. We work together. Now, not one of we're not sitting around and holding our hands and kumbaya and we all believe in the same God and we're all going to go to the same place. No, no, no. We all have our different beliefs. 
We all have what we believe, but we do have a care that people uh, have housing in Indianapolis. Uh, so we are working together on housing issues. We have, happen to have the highest eviction rate in the country. So here are families. They're talking about families out, bingo, a mom and, and, and working, working families and hardcore landlords. So all of us respect each other's faith, learn from each other, learning from each other. But yet, you know, everyone knows that I am a Bible-believing, evangelical Christian, da-da-da-da-da. But you know what? The Holy Spirit does a work. And the Holy Spirit moves us together in some wonderful ways. So, but, so what a witness that is that, that the faith community can come together and do something good for the city. And we don't have to just, you know, oh, well, we've got to go to the state legislator. We may need them, but we're working at it. And all of our faith says that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> well, this, this to me just seems like such a call to follow the Holy Spirit in a proactive faith, not a passive faith, and that grace isn't just leading us into passivity, but proactivity. So that's exactly. a question I have uh, for you, um, I have a few, but one that that really hits me is if you're someone listening right now, if you're one of the listeners, you're just like, I'm an ordinary average person. Like, how would you encourage them to have eyes for partnership within the community, have eyes to of compassion and um, to help to help your your community flourish. Well, I think one of the great things as far as communities are concerned and, and local communities, because this is where it's, this is where it's all happening and, and where it impacts the whole greater community. But what are the issues that you're dealing with in your community? What are concerns? What are concerns in your school? What are concerns with your children in your schools? If Children need extra tutoring and there's no one at home to tutor them. Can you form some groups come together to go to the school and tutor? Because all of us have, we don't just live in our houses alone. We're a part of this community and God's called us to be part of the community. So I think, you know, begin to find out what, what are some great needs that, that need to, I think there are all kinds of things that we need. And I think, you know, uh, George, I think when we pray, the Lord brings those things to mind. Those are prayer. That's prayer too. Is just Lord, show me something today. What is it? And God will do that. So I, it's that's pretty simple, but it's uh, it's for real. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we make love so complex, but you're you're making it too simple. It's kind of that kind of scares me because if I pray, it might lead me to have to do something. Joanne, that's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You might have to you might have to put up that game or whatever. Uh, but uh, you might have to do something. But yet. We're made. That's what we're made for. Humans are made for that. We're made uh, to connect, and that's when greater joy comes. Actually, mm. that deeper joy, more than just one more something you bought. You know, you seem like a um, a straight shooter, and uh -huh. a very and a very compassionate person. Like that. There's a that's a really interesting tension, and you 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 seem to hold the tension between community responsibility and an individual responsibility. How do you, how could you help people walk in that kind of, like you seem like a straight shooter and you're compassionate. How, how do you do that? That's interesting. I, I don't, I didn't know that. So your insight is rather interesting. Maybe because I get older, I'm more of a straight shooter. I guess I, I've constantly prayed for even since that early experience, I told you, uh, for the Lord to help me see the world through his eyes. Mm. And uh, uh, and I think when you pray that, you God does answer that prayer. You begin to see that. Uh, I, I want to make one thing clear. You mentioned that I was with Obama, but just in case there are others on this podcast, I worked a lot with George Bush too. So mm. uh, on HIV AIDS. So just in case anybody gets worried that I spent too much time with the Democrats or <laughs> with the Republicans. That's worth uh, mentioning. That's great. Yeah. So I, I, I had great respect for him too and did a lot working in Africa in particular and Haiti with HIV AIDS. So um, with that, I think sometimes we do have to say hard things, but I think that's where the Holy Spirit helps us to say them in ways that people can hear. I mean, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in we grow in the fertile soil of affirmation. And I think Lloyd Ogilvie, that was an old pastor at Hollywood Presbyterian long before your time, uh, made that statement in a book. And I've never gotten away from that. 
we grow in the fertile soil of affirmation. We don't necessarily grow when we are being torn up. I have this theory that as we are affirmed, the, there, there's energy that comes into us in our affirm, being affirmed that helps us. We already know our weaknesses, helps us begin to work on our weaknesses. Mm, I love that. It's an appreciative approach of, of people in the world around us. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about how your, your compassionate faith and your approach to faith led you to, I believe, found World Hope International. Would you mind telling us a little bit of that story? Sure. In the mid-80s, we were pastoring in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and that was at the time of the famine in Ethiopia. And so the ABC affiliate in Grand Rapids, Michigan, decided they wanted to go to Ethiopia and do their own documentary. And so I was invited to go along with him as a faith person. And it was, I was absolutely overwhelmed. I, you know, we've all seen this on TV and whatever, but see it up close and personal. And one, I remember in one place, there were 250,000 people in this feeding camp alone. It's still considered the worst famine in modern history. It just absolutely overwhelmed me. And I didn't find many people of faith there. Now, it was a communist country at that time, so I understand that. But I came back just like where, and in the 80s, you know, we were kind of meet selfish folks too. You know, we were praying for parking spaces. And if your pencil fell, you prayed that you'd find another one or something like that. I don't know. It was kind of the silly stuff. And uh, and I just, I, I kept thinking, we, there's a big world out there and God's called us to it. So anyway, I came home and I talked to uh, folks, leaders about it and to start something where they, oh, no, we, you know, we've got big organizations and, you know, you've got some out there in Seattle and whatever, that's enough, but I, but it isn't taking care of the whole world. No. So that was in 1985. It, it just wouldn't leave me, but I'm going to went on with my life. Of course, I was doing quite a few other things and things, but it just kind of, it's one of those dreams, I think, that sits inside of a person. You don't know if it's anything's going to happen, but you can't get it out. Or a vision, I should say, more than a dream, just a vision. But uh, 1993, some things began to move forward and it began to look like, okay, maybe let's look at this. Let's look at this. And it was through my own denomination. And then finally, in 95, it began, okay, this is going to come together. Are you going to do this, Joanna, or are you not going to do this? And I look at that, George, because that was that was 11, almost 11 years. I call that the fullness of time. I think God gives us a vision, but there's a fullness of time when it's to take place. And if we aren't careful, we'll jump out and just create it ourselves before God is ready to. He had a lot that he needed to do with me. He had a lot of pieces in time. I mean, that's in the in the story of Jesus, you know, in Luke. Uh, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. I don't think God sat in heaven and said, well, on January the 25th, I'm going to do this. No, it was all these pieces, what was happening in the world, how things were moving, fullness of time. And I think we need to look at that ourselves in our own lives. God trusts us with a vision, but we have to do it in the fullness of time. So anyway, so that's what happened. The fullness of time came. Uh, and it was in January of 1996. We lived in a parsonage right outside of St. Louis at that time. I felt it was time to start it. No money. And that was a huge leap. I call it the Kierkegaardian leap. Kierkegaard talks about the leap of faith. And yeah. uh, because I've never done many of those huge ones. We still had two kids in college. Two had already graduated, two in college. And uh, we still needed more money to, to do it. And I, had, I was making money in other things and had to shut that off and say, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I well remember. One year, one day, my husband called me from his office over to my office. And he said, when do you get your last paycheck from blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I get it on January the 20th. He said, okay, I'm trying to figure out the budget. College where these two boys are, our two sons are, they're asking for money and we got to figure it out. And January 21st, I had set up this meeting with this man that I didn't think cared much about poor people to begin with. Uh, and we'd already set up, God had already done some things. Yeah, I, I want to say too, when God gives a vision, he began to show himself before you really leap to. And there were some strange things that, that just took place uh, that were out. I mean, I didn't ask anyone for anything. I'll give you one example. My sister is an opera singer. At that time, she was living in Germany. And one of her opera singer friends who made a lot of money said, 
I need to get rid of some money. She's American I, for tax. I need to get rid of some money. Isn't your sister doing some noble thing that I can get rid of some money? <laughs> I said, well, one of the first things I want to do is build a, a nursing school in Haiti. And uh, so bingo, here came the check. I mean, that is, I could have never run out and found a major donor like that. You know, it was just, uh, just bizarre. So that said to me, okay, God, these are confirmations you're in this. Anyway, I had breakfast with, or lunch with that man that day. And I started telling him about that. And he said, and, and I almost canceled because he didn't care. I could tell he didn't care much about poor people. I knew that ahead of time. But anyway, so I didn't. And um, he looked at me and he said, this is pretty interesting. How much is it going to cost you to do this? I had a budget in my purse. I pulled out the full budget of operational budget for one year. So when you have a dream, write it down, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, pulled it out. He looked at it. He said, with tears in his eyes, I'll pick up the whole thing. So he picked up the whole first year operation. Wow. Now, that I didn't just sit and 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 uh, squander and i sat there and then they gave me travel money to go raise more money to do more money and to hire a person and etc and still so it worked out of that bedroom i didn't run out and rent office fancy office space that's that's how it got started then in the year 2000 we moved to washington dc and uh and that again that's the year that george bush came in as president and he established a faith-based office uh and so i was on the ground floor with that so that's just how God moved, moved in those ways and continued to do so. And I'll give you one little interesting thing. We're working. If you've seen the movie Blood Diamonds, you know what, what was going on in the war in Sierra Leone. And my denomination had been in Sierra Leone since the late 1800s. And so we were working there in the midst of all this and many, many of our people impacted and whatever. But none of it was on the news. I kept thinking, why is this not on the news? This is one of the most brutal wars in in the world at this time they cut off people's arms and legs and that's how they had the rebels identified their place so i thought well i'll just go i kept feeling you got if i could go and get a story i'm sure cnn would love to get my story and i was so naive and uh, arrogant or whatever i ran into this uh college grad who just finished in communications oh no i got an a and whatever we'll go and that's great he said i won't charge anything okay so he and some other folks went Halfway across the Atlantic, I decided to check his work. It was horrible. Oh, my goodness. What am I going to do, dear Lord? Oh, dear. I know. I should have done it, but I just listened. He got an A and all this stuff. So I started praying. Oh, Lord, give me the gift of photography. Give me the gift of journalism. You you said you'd give us the gifts that we need. I mean, I quoted every scripture verse I'd heard and every prosperity preacher that ever said anything about it. <laughs> I quoted all that all the way rest of, to, to, to Africa. When we got off the plane in the capital city of Sierra Leone, which is Freetown, getting our bags off the carousel, this man came up to me, put out his hand, and he said, hello, and he gave me his name. He said, I'm a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. I'm in here to get a story. Is there some way you can help me? I'm telling you, I wanted to grab that man and never let him out of my sight. Hmm. And I said, oh, what guest house are you staying in? And I was with national leaders there as well, Sierra Leoneans. And so we picked him up and he and I traveled together for three days and he came back and that story was on the front page of the Washington Post. Clinton was the president then. It got Clinton's attention. Uh, he sent a special envoy to begin to work at that, all of these things. So you take some, I've looked in my life a lot of times and thought, how many, what did I miss on the risks I didn't take, you know? <laughs> and I could then go on and on. God opened up many doors. We opened up literally a, center uh, center for all the amputees and i mean as many as we could amputees in freetown and worked with them and, and, and still doing enormous work there today seeing change take place mm. i was actually in freetown i was i was headed to freetown in a uh, in sierra leone and uh oh, really? my friend um darren chesky texted me he was like hey you if you're over there he's like we do work over there um yeah. have some partnerships he's right. like you exactly. gotta meet a guy named yeah, he goes, yeah. you got to meet a guy named Saidu Canoe. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. He's like, he's the most, on, like, integrity, biggest integrity guy in the exactly. country. You got to talk with him. Uh, you got to, you got to learn about what he and uh, World Help are doing. And yeah, it was amazing. So the, I, I, I actually met him. I've met him in country, oh, I think, wonderful. twice. Oh, wonderful. Okay. 
I didn't know that. Oh, this is funny. <laughs> I got to see like, you know, their offices and yes, um, yes. interview him. We actually have a video recording of him. We've interviewed him and he's, it was oh, really? fantastic. Yeah. And um, on that side, he was the one who helped drive me and the Washington Post reporter around to all those places. Really? Wow. <laughs> yes, that's yes, yes. That's yeah, amazing. Sure Small is. world. Sure is. Yes. Snyder's best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Would you mind just giving us a snapshot of what what the, the scope of what World Hope is doing uh, now? Yes. Sure. Uh, so World Hope uh, works in, uh, in water and sanitation, which would be uh, wells and, and all that goes with that. And, and we're doing many, bringing water to houses, et cetera, but also in communities, wells, and et cetera. And, and sanitation is about latrines. If you don't have latrines, you don't have that, you still have disease. And so you're working in, in, in that kind of thing. And then we also work in the area of anti-human trafficking. And uh, we had started that in 96, in, out at first in Cambodia, and then working still there. And then uh, working there in the Philippines as well with that. Uh, and then, but in Sierra Leone also, in fact, we have the only home for survivors. But again, I want to say in, in this is also working on laws because it's the same thing that I said before. You can just keep collecting the people that are being trafficked for sex or for labor or whatever. But if you're not seeing the laws change and if you aren't seeing the, the traffickers prosecuted, it doesn't change. So we're seeing some major change happen in Sierra Leone because of that. And a new law that was just passed that will be, be right, that traffickers will be prosecuted and also on migrant labor as well and mm. at the border. So uh, so we're doing and, and, and I want to say with the heart of Jesus in this, these I'll just give you one example. One young woman was brought to our our center in a wheelchair. She was 21 years old. She had a stroke while she was being uh, assaulted. Uh, and uh, they brought her in that wheelchair and our house mothers there just looked at her and said, she is going to walk again. God is going to make this happen, you know, and they prayed with her. But they also took her to physical therapy, carried her literally to physical therapy two and three times a week. And today she is walking. The glow of Jesus is on her face. It's an amazing story because she's been loved and she's been touched by Jesus. So these kinds of things are about faith and, and works together that are that are really combining to bring Jesus love and people's lives transformed. The stories are I could give you many, many stories from all of these years of of traffic victims and the, and the transformation that has taken place in their lives and what they're doing today and so forth. And, and as far as water is concerned too, we, I mean, we have this vision of finally in Sierra Leone in particular, seeing a country where every person has clean water and we're edging up towards, you know, several million yet, but edging up toward that goal. And it's, so it's not impossible to see this happen in the next few years. And along with that, we show the Jesus film. So it doesn't mean, and I don't want this to sound transactional, that, well, you have to raise your hand to follow Jesus or you'll, and you'll get the well. No, 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 no. It's the well, et cetera. The Jesus film comes in far later and that this is an opportunity. This is how you can know who Jesus is. I don't like that transactional stuff because that's, that's not what Jesus did, you know. And then we have small businesses that we work in and, um, and agriculture. How many countries are you in? We're in 15, but we're deeper. We have lighter things in some countries and, and health. I forgot to mention about health, health too. For example, in Sierra Leone right now, because it has the highest infant and maternal mortality rate, one of those highest in the world. And so we're doing research with this. And so we've been able to get some grants for research. Why is this happening? And then we're already finding the research is already showing us why. And we're already doing training to save these babies' lives and these mothers' lives. So it's, it's, it's already happening. We're really quite deep in the Philippines, Cambodia, in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, and in Haiti. So in Sierra Leone now, I think we're the, one of the largest groups in Sierra Leone. And then when I mentioned about water, one of the things we're doing in, in some places, for example, in Haiti, we've got a whole desalination plant. And uh, so really? we're desalinating water right out of the ocean. And that water gets now to people and they pay a small coin for it. And it's now, it's cash positive. The business is cash positive now. And this particular one is for 60,000 people in this in this community near the ocean. That's amazing. Yeah. 
the work you're doing is incredible. Thank you for just the faith and compassion it takes to drive that and to and to forge partnerships to make all that happen. And you have to do the partnerships. Thank you for saying that. It's it's a partnership with churches. We have partnerships with other companies. We have partnerships with corporations. Africa has this great proverb: if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go strong, go together. Something to that effect. Yeah. You know. And yeah. in, so together, you're going to make the difference. You know. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I heard it. It was uh, if you want to go a short distance, go alone. If you want to go a long distance, go together. That may be it. Yeah, something to that and it, effect. It's yeah. like, I mean, but that's you know, that's the fish in the loaves. That's you know, yeah, right. seeing it's what true. God has, bringing it all together. That's right. Why is compassion so important to our world right now? How would you encourage the average ordinary person to be an agent of compassion and peace in a really polarized world right now? That is a that is a great question, George, and something that I think this is the time of God's people ever. In the polarization, this is God's people to bring people together. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, he didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. You know, you can keep peace by just smothering everything. It's kind of like I used to do it for kids. And, you know, sometimes relatives come for Thanksgiving dinner. You don't want any big fight. So I would... Now, don't say this to Uncle Harold and don't say this to Aunt May and don't say this. Just, you know, just be quiet for about two hours and we'll just have a happy Thanksgiving, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's peacekeeping, you know. But peacemaking is helping people to understand they have to say things. Sometimes they aren't good things. I was just with a pastor just last week that's been able to bring together, and it was on CNN the other night uh, in Salisbury, North Carolina, two groups very angry over a confederate statue in that's been in the center of salisbury north carolina for a long time and he told me how okay he understood he happened to be a person of color but he understood where these white folks were coming from you know and and i think they were stunned that he would understand you know and i want to work with you with it now you can understand where we're coming from and that became reciprocal so it was amazing as he told me about cnn did a short story about it uh, that didn't quite get the whole story. But as he told me about it, I thought, wow, this is why Jesus said a peacemaker. He's called us children of God when we're the peacemakers. And the Holy Spirit, I just want to say again, gives wisdom in that process of peacemaking. Mm. And compassion is the very heart of God. I mean, who God sent his son, that was compassion. Mm. Uh, and so I think the word compassion has just become kind of light it, it doesn't have the depth of what it what what it really means it's like well i feel sorry for you or i feel bad or whatever and, and we're all going to have those things but that doesn't quite get to the depth of compassion and that's literally the compassionate heart of god peacemaking and compassion is the heart of god so we just keep praying for god to help us help us it's not easy i i don't like talking to people that rip me up and how could you believe that you know etc and i'm i don't know i'm not always good i i fail on this, I, I pop off when I shouldn't pop off. Uh, but God can continue to give us that. I, I think this is the great call of of the people of God in, in these days to compassion and to peacemaking and lifting people up. I never have forgotten this. Uh, I was in India several years ago, and this pastor wanted to start a school. And it was in a, in a very, really rigid, it had non-conversion laws, et cetera, rigid area. And uh, But he, he wanted to start a school anyway. So I walked in the church and he had about 35 little children sitting there and uh, he wanted to build a building. He says, see these children right here on the front row. These children are all children of prostitutes and they have no name. Mm. I mean, the community only knew them as, oh yeah, you're a child of a prostitute. No name, no name. I, it's hard for me to grasp that they're only identified by, by who they are, by their birth. And he said, so what we've done, we've given them all names and we've given them all biblical names and we're teaching them who they are by the name we have given them. So he said, here's Hannah, here's Mary, here's Esther, here's Daniel, here's David, here's Mark. I mean, I was in tears. Well, 2016, we've been about, that would be about, uh, yeah, 20 years by the time I'd been there. And I've been there several times in, in and out. But 2016, I was there. Yeah, we gave, gave money and they put a block, little block building. Well, now this school is phenomenal. 1,500 students, 
all self-sustaining, uh, all kinds of science training in it, and still very Christian. I mean, s- subjects are taught, the Bible is taught, et cetera, in the midst of all this. And, and, and you know, many Hindus come to this. It's all, it's, it works. It's great. But this young man came up to me, good looking young man. He came up to me. He said, I remember you when you came into the church that day. He said, my name is Daniel. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yes. The little boy with no name. And he started telling me, I just finished an MBA. And he said, I've got businesses all over India. And I've been having business in Zambia, Africa. And I came back today to celebrate because I would have never made it had it not been for all of this. And I thought, okay, he he, he had the very character of what we know of Daniel in the Bible. Mm. So that talks about so much about how we name people. Mm. Oh, I love that. Joanne, would you mind if... um. I just shifted the last part of our conversation. I I so appreciate your time. You just have such a wealth of ministry background. You're a female leader, you know, Uh and I imagine there's been some blessing, but also some uh, challenges to that. So do you mind if we just talked about empowering women in leadership and the importance of that, especially within the church? Love to. I have a vision (laughs) to see many, many more women come into leadership and to become pastors and leaders in business, of course, and and elsewhere, elsewhere. but in the church, the body of believers needs both men and women. I'm not one of these to say, it's got to have all women in there to lead. No, no, no. It needs the fullness of God is both male and female. And the church needs to have the fullness of God represented in male and female leadership. Now, I believe that women can lead at any level. I don't believe in hierarchy that a man has to be over a female. I, I, I believe Pentecost shattered that. And uh, when we look at the, the, the prophecy from Joel, that's exactly what took place there. Your men and your women will prophesy. That's right. That's exactly right. You're young and you're old. It's right there. And we see that then throughout. We see it in the New Testament. I mean, when we really take a look at, at Priscilla and Aquila, and we take a look at Phoebe, and we take a look at the church, Junia with the church at, Rome, I mean, you can go through all of this. It becomes a concern of mine is that women's gifts get smothered because of that. And I, I well remember Phoebe Palmer was a woman in the 1800s who preached a lot and whatever. She's written this book called The Promise of the Father. But one of the things she prayed, oh, Lord, how long will it be that women's gifts will no longer be buried, but we will see a resurrection in women's gifts? And, and that's that's my prayer. I want to see the resurrection of women's gifts. But but also, George, women have got to own that too and not be afraid. And I don't mean we're coming out fighting, we got to have our way. Nothing of that. It is in, in God's grace and compassion and beauty that women's gifts are resurrected in that process. What are some practical steps that you encourage people, maybe practices within a church setting? I want to make that clear. Like in every sector, you know, we want to see women using their gifts. It's not about their gender. It's about their gifts that they've been given by right. God That's right. to lead, especially in the church, like you're talking about. How, how do we encourage practices of support and empowerment of, of females in leadership? I think one of the things that uh, Hebrews talks about, spur one another on with your gifts. How do we spur one another on with the gifts? And uh, which, by the way, many scholars think that, that Priscilla wrote the book of Hebrews. That's how I like to think of it too. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of it is calling out the gifts and particularly male pastors need to do this more. They see in women gifts that they probably women think they have, but are afraid to exercise them. Mm. And that's what I think that very text talks about spurring one another on It's calling out the gifts that you see in another person and that you see in women. What are some of those gifts that you see? I think that's one of the ways. Rather than just say, go do this job, but I see these gifts in you. And then many times, there's several things that happen. I think many times women say, wow, I have that gift. Well, I could start this. I could start this ministry within the church. You know, many times I think we're in the church. We've been too categorized. You can do this. Everybody can only do this, this. But when you begin to open up the church, say, hey, let's see what all the ministries this church could do. How can this church change this community? You know, how can this church make things better in this community? After all, that's why we're here. And women can take a look and say, wait a minute, I can. I think God's called me to this. I'm gifted. And and I think we begin to see that kind of leadership develop as well. Mm. 
it's not just only on the board of elders or, or whatever, but it's all of this, that leadership growth. I mean, I, I'm going to say that's very much what happened with me. Mm. What would you say are the biggest barriers to seeing that happen? Well, I think pastors, leaders are afraid. They don't want things to kind of, maybe things might get out of hand, you know, <laughs> I won't be able to control everything. So I think that becomes a barrier. Fear. I think fear is a barrier. What would happen if this ministry got too big or this person got too much power? I think we have those. We don't say those things out loud, but I think internally that becomes becomes a problem. So I think when we can begin to say, no, this is the church is broader and broader and broader and greater and greater. So I think one of the ways in which I worked in one church is I started a lay ministry institute. Then people that felt called, and this is the ministry you think you want to do, then let's get some training. And so we began to do even biblical training. And I don't mean even, but sometimes you think only in leadership or whatever I'm talking about. And and then leadership kinds of things. And I think then that begins to, and it became very exciting because as people began to say, well, I'd like to have a ministry with prisoners. Really? Okay. Well, let's see what this is going to look like. Well, here's, let's equip you for this in a in a simple way, I'm not talking about any degrees or anything else. That lay minister institute had no, we, we gave people a certificate at the end that only said it was from that church. It wasn't going to get them a job at Boeing or something, you know. And they valued that because it had been something they'd been together with other people and learning. Ugh, that's amazing. I was reading this book by Katie Cole, which was great. Uh, if any yeah, of uh-huh. our listeners want to read about like how to help create culture within your organization uh-huh. or within the church. And it's called Developing Female Leaders. It's really good. It was on page 181. I was reading through this, and uh, and 180, she was like, I got to interview a hero, Dr. Joanne Lyon, for this oh book project. Goodness. So you're in this, and uh, there's this quote that she writes about. It's from her interview with you. I'm going to read it and just ask you to kind of respond to it. Is that cool? Okay, sure. Joanne believes that God is calling more women than ever uh, than he ever has before. In her studies of historical theology, she explained that every time that there's been a spiritual awakening, women are often called up into ministry and spiritual leadership. It's one of the signs of a revival that isn't talked about very often. But within the United States, she explained, there has been an unfortunate cycle. Historically, when a spiritual awakening begins to take place, we tend to want to organize it, administrate it, systematize it, institutionalize it, and in the process, the women tend to be pushed out, but she believes we are in the midst of a new awakening, and God is calling women like never before, and I'm praying that this time the women will stay engaged. The movement is taking place. So what's your response just, just hearing that? I believe everything that, that Joanne said, <laughs> and even more, because I said, I've seen it later, a woman that I have a great deal of respect for, Tammy Donahue, who was with the Foursquare. Already still with Foursquare, but she led in that. She's now leading this whole big thing, uh, seeing this vision of 5,000 women church planters, God's calling. Wow. And she and Daniel Strickland and a whole bunch of other people are working in that. Uh, And it isn't isn't just in the States. She just sent me something this week. It's spilled out to Kenya and other parts of the world. So it's going to be more than 5,000. So I believe that. And I believe that then then we have to be careful because ultimately after... What awakenings happen, there are certain institutions that come together, which you need to. I'm not against the institutions, but we need to be, we need to make sure that we don't follow the same patterns past that the women then are part of the leadership of the institutions and, uh, and move it forward. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. I have more and more questions and young women coming to me in universities and places where I am and saying, you know, God's calling me in. And many that are in churches where or denominations or whatever, where women are not called. And they keep say, they'll kind of whisper to me, I feel like God's calling me to do this, but nobody around me does it. And I said, no, God's calling you. There are others out there. So this is fascinating to me. So no one can say, well, it's a fad or they're seeing it. No, no, no. This is happening in places where it would never happen. The fad would never take over there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Wow. As we've kind of walked the landscape of your story, we've looked at you know, compassionate faith. We've looked at how God has used you as a leader, a spirit-empowered female leader, founding an organization that's now like has global influence and impact. What would you What would you love to see 
happen in the church and through the church in the next five to ten years? If you if you woke up five years from now, ten years from now, what would you love to see, especially after such a polarizing time that we've we are in? You know what? I would love to see that the church has really, really come together regarding racial reconciliation and racial justice. And that's only the Holy Spirit can do that. And I, a lot of folks are working on it. I'm not against that at all, but only ultimately the Holy Spirit can begin to do that. It would be such a witness to the world that this, that we don't have to deal with, we are not regarding white supremacy. We are not, we, we are all one in Jesus. I mean, it's Pentecost. People talk about the fears about replacement theory, you know, and all that. And you know, I told somebody the other day, I don't know, Pentecost shattered replacement theory, you know. And so in Revelation, it is too. As we look through the old New Testament move there, no, we it's our bent towards sin that makes us get into those places of uh, fear and of the other. But the Holy Spirit fills that and we get rid of that fear. And I think what an incredible witness that would be of the power of God and evangelism, bringing people to Jesus in that process. I mean, we want to bring people to Jesus. That's what's going to be a try. Wait a minute. There is power in God. There is something more than me, you know. It's, it's interesting. There's just been a study. Brian Grimm does a lot of studies. It's just the decline in religion in America is bringing on a health crisis. There we are. I, I just think that's a, that's a great vision. I, I had the vision of uh, love being poured out through all. And it, all that would happen out of the compassion of God's love and reducing our fear of the other. Mm. Well, Dr. Joe Ann Lyons, it's been a, a privilege. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your voice. It's been a joy to, to interview you. Well, you're a great interviewer, by the way. I mean, you know, we could talk all day here. <laughs> I love it. The way you respond, it makes me keep going, you know, so. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been such a rich conversation. Oh, great. Loved it. Thank you, George. And blessings to all of the listeners. Uh, you have a great man leading this podcast, so keep listening. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Garden City podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email us at info at gardencitynw.com. If you want to support the podcast, please rate and review it or share it with your friends. And if you'd like to contribute to what Garden City is doing with this podcast, you can give at gardencitynw.com slash give. Thanks for listening. 